batteries in all the, um, in, in all the microphones with some new batteries. I got the, the guy that put the sound system in and said we needed to put in alkaline batteries. And so I did. And apparently the alkaline batteries I bought were all duds and I didn't realize it. And so halfway through the message last week, my microphone went dead, even though I just put new batteries in it. So this morning I went ahead and, and took the liberty of grabbing some batteries to keep up here with me. So if it goes dead again, just someone can you know raise their hand and, and, and wave. Apparently Maddie last week was standing back there raising her hand and I just was like so zeroed in, I never even realized it. But um, yeah, yeah, I thought the spirit was just moving that much. That's true. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. Well, this morning we're, we're continuing this series called Sacrifice. We, uh, we started this a few weeks ago where we'll be, we've been talking about different things we give up in order to submit to God. In order to say, you know, I, I can go without praise and glory, God, because all the praise and glory that is worth anything is yours anyway. I could go without wealth or, or riches or treasures on this earth, God, because all the wealth and treasures and riches worth anything are yours anyway. And this morning we're saying I can go without devoting myself to something here. I can go without giving all of my time and energy and focus to something here because all the time and energy and focus that I should be giving is to you anyway. Because I'll be giving you all of my time for eternity. And so this morning we're talking about the sacrifice of time and what it means to do that. What it means to be a living sacrifice. And we'll get into that here in a second. Before, I, before we do, before we dig into the word, let's, let's open with a word of prayer. And then we'll jump on in. Father, this morning this is a message that I know steps on my toes. It steps on a lot of our toes. It, it's a difficult one, especially in a fast-paced modern world. It can be hard to slow down. It can be even more hard to give up aspects of our lives, of our time, of things that we want in pursuit of following you. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you move us, that you speak through me so that your voice is heard, but also that we receive it openly and humbly. And we come to put it into practice, what your word has to say. Thank you, God, for your care for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever been doing something and you lost track of time? You know, it's amazing how, how that happens. We, we become so focused and immersed in a particular hobby or a job or, or maybe just relaxing. And we look up at the clock and we realize three hours have passed by. And we don't even realize where the time's gone. It's just all of a sudden, boom, it's, it's gone. And, and this happens in small moments of life, and it happens in the large-scale moments of life. I'm realizing now, the older I get, the more years fly by, you know. It, it seems like just yesterday I was here, but at the same time, I can remember when I was in kindergarten where it felt like it took three years for me to move to first grade. You know? Time moves faster as you get older. It doesn't move faster, but it feels like it. And there's another thing uh, in, in the modern world that often causes this time slippage activity to, to take place, and it's called binge-watching TV. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that. 
Um, it's something that generally happens if you, you uh, utilize streaming your TV instead of watching on a satellite. Because if you watch on a satellite or cable, you always have commercials. Um, you usually can only watch one episode of a show at a time. So, for example, maybe your favorite show is NCIS. Well, you're only going to have one or two episodes of NCIS air on a night, and then you have to wait until the next day to watch the next couple episodes. But if you're streaming your TV, all of those episodes are right there at a click of a button. You click watch, and then after the episode's over, you have about five seconds to decide whether or not you're going to watch another one. And you watch that, that wheel spin, and you think, man, I better go, nah, too late, I'll just sit here and watch another one. And you end up just getting sucked into watching, binge-watching this show. And it's, I'm ashamed to say, I have, I'm a horrible binge-watching TV person. I, I don't know how else to say that, but I, I will be, I can be, moving and moving and moving and doing one job after another at, uh, in the yard. I, I can get all sorts of stuff done around the house, but as soon as I plant myself in front of a TV and put a show on from Netflix or, or from Hulu, I, I, it's hard for me to get up. And, and I'll tell you, my, my Isabella and I, when we started, when we first got married, there was a show on Netflix that we watched together. It was a really good show. It was a really fun show, and, and we enjoyed it. We watched it really quickly. Seven seasons of this show, and it took us like a month to watch. We've watched that show now three times, <laughs> all seven seasons, three different occasions, and all of that time has just slipped away. And I didn't realize it until the third time we watched that show, and I thought to myself, how much time of my life have I given up watching this show that I know that what the next episode is going to be, what I know what's going to happen next? Have I given up just to sit here in front of this TV. And, and you know, it's, these things happen to us in all sorts of areas of life, whether it's video games or, or TV or, or, or just a, a certain hobby. You know, we, we let these things take over, and then we look back and we realize, I just gave up a week's worth of my life watching a TV show. I just gave up a week's worth of my life having a certain hobby. And it's not to say that these things are bad. It's essential that we relax. It's essential that we have rest. It's essential that we sit back and we aren't constantly moving and moving and moving and going. What I'm trying to emphasize is a lot of times we don't realize how much time we're giving up. We don't realize how much time, time that we can never get back, we're spending. The truth is, as humans, we can only move forward in time. And what that means is that time is our most, most valuable commodity. We have 86,400 seconds in each day. And every time one is spent, it's gone. It doesn't come back to us. It's not something that we can rewind and redo. You know, as we get older, or maybe when we're younger... Something might happen, and it seems like in a, in a world with, with being able to rewind live TV, we do something stupid, and we think, oh, let me get the rewind button. Oh, wait, there isn't one. We only move forward. And so the question is, what do we do with our time? Should we spend our time living it up, Waste, not wasting any moment, making sure that we are always finding pleasure in this life? Right? That's called hedonism. That what, that, what that means is that we are living to be happy. 
that we only live in this world for a brief moment of time and we should spend all of that time making ourselves happy, no, no matter what it is that makes ourselves happy? Or do we spend our time living for other people, for being morally good, making the world a better place? This is an right notion. This is a good notion that instead of spending our time to make ourselves happy, we're spending our time to make things better in this world. But the thing with this notion is if you don't believe in another life after this world, why would you waste this life living for other people? So you have... And this is a common trend in this world. You have people who are atheists, people who refuse to believe that there's life after death, that are then saying, but you need to be morally good and you need to live your life in pursuit of other people. Well, why would you believe that? If you don't believe there's anything after this life, if you don't believe that there isn't a Savior, if you don't believe that there is an eternity with God waiting for you, why would you waste this life doing things that you don't want to do? The truth is then, if we do believe that through Christ we have life after death, if we do believe that through Christ we get to dwell in the house of God forever, that we get to be in his presence forever, then the way we perceive and interact with time while we're here should be different than the way the rest of the world does. So what are we to do with our time here? I think the answer to this question first lies in who God is or what we do with our worship and, and knowing that God is God. And what I mean by this is turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to start there this morning. Exodus chapter 20. In order to understand what it means to, to be a living sacrifice, to, to sacrifice time here, we first have to understand what it means to give our sacrifice to a soul recipient. So listen to this. This is the first two of the Ten Commandments. You know, Israel is wandering in, in the wilderness. God speaks to Moses and says, I want you to give these commands. These are commands directly from me. I want you to give them to Israel. They're to guard your entire people, the, the entire nation. Keep them, write them on stone tablets so that they never fade, they never go away. And the very first two commandments, here it is, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then, the Lord, the, then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Do not have any other gods beside me. That's the first command. Do not have any other gods beside me. Second command, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything, in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth, do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. You know, it's always been interesting to me. God gives ten commands to Israel. And he uses up two of those commands to basically talk about the same thing. Don't worship anything else. Have no other gods before me. Don't even have any idols before me. And these are two, uh, th these are two things that are going along the same trend, but are also different. First off, if it, he's, he is 
presenting an ancient Near Eastern notion that there are a multiplicity of gods, that, that it, there isn't a single god, which he says, I am the only god. But what he's emphasizing is you're going to hear there's other gods. You're going to go to cultures in the promised land where there's a multiplicity of God, that there's a Canaanite deity. There's this Canaanite pantheon of gods. You just left Egypt where there's a multiplicity of gods. And what I'm saying is even though those aren't real gods, don't even think that they're real gods. I am the only god that you worship. And he's emphasizing this. Point blank, do not have any other gods besides me. But then he goes a step further. Even these gods that, that they say are, are in the stars, or these gods that they say are, are the god of the Nile River, or, or things of this nature, you know, don't worship those, but don't even create for yourself a picture of worship. Don't even create for yourself an image of to bow down to. Don't even create for yourself something to represent me. And so what does this, this command, we're here in a few months, we're actually going to do a series covering the Ten Commands. We're going to split it into two parts. And we'll go into that a little bit more then. But this command is, is going even further than saying don't worship the idols of Baal and Asheroth and, and, and Ra and all these different things. But it's also going forward and saying, you know, when, when Egypt built the golden calf and worshipped it, they, what they were saying is this calf is representing Yahweh. They weren't creating their own God point blank and saying this is the God of the golden calf. They're saying this golden calf represents Yahweh. And God got mad at that because it was breaking the second command of creating an image to worship. What God is saying is it doesn't matter if you create something and say, I'm going to bow down to this so that it looks like, so, so that it's a way for me to think of bowing down to God. That's still idolatry. He's saying, you worship me and you worship me alone. You worship me in spirit and in truth. You don't create anything to take place, to be the object, to be the recipient of, my, of your worship except for me. And the reason that is, is because if we go back to the very beginning of Scripture, God's already created images of God, us. We're the images of God that bear authority to all of creation. So why would we go out and create other images to replace the images that he created? Now that's kind of going a little bit further, but the point I'm trying to emphasize here, the very first two commands that govern all, that, that before he goes into any other commands is, don't worship any other gods. Don't create anything to be the object of, of worship other than my spirit, other than me, myself. Nothing receives worship but me. This is the first two commands that God gives to Israel. But what's interesting to me is some of the qualifiers that he places after giving that second command. Firstly, in verse 5, he says, Do not bow and worship them to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, this isn't a mark against God. Now, this isn't God saying, you know, this is the one quality that's bad about me, guys. You know, I'm, I'm perfect and good, and I have all these great eternal qualities, but I'll just tell you right now, the one downfall about me is that I'm jealous. This isn't God calling himself out for an error in who he is. 
This is God just saying an attribute of his being that he's a jealous God because he is fully aware that anything else that receives worship is an affront to him. It's a slap in his face. And it's something that deserves wrath because we're choosing to worship the created object instead of the creator of the object. And that includes time. If we believe that God is timeless, that he is eternal, that he is outside of time, then who created time? God did. So if we look at the time in our lives and, and, and this limited quantity that we have that is always running out and we say, I got to do this and I got to do this and I got to get this done and I got to make sure I get this done and I got all these different things that I want to do before my life ends. Well, what are we worshiping? We're worshiping the created object of time. We're not sacrificing that created object in pursuit of worshiping God. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want us worshiping our time. He wants us using the time he's given us to worship him. There's another qualifier here that's, I think, really pertinent to the modern world. He says, I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, a lot of times we come to passages like this and we think, well, how can God say that about himself or say that when, when he's also a God of love? Well, we understand God's love because we also understand God's wrath and judgment. God can't be a God of love if he isn't also a God of wrath. But at the same time, think about it this way. If your kids see that all you ever do is devote all of your time, energy, and focus to one particular thing, to one hobby, to one desire, to one sole object of your life, what do you think they're going to do when they grow up? The exact same thing. So what do you, th you think it's just God being jealous and passing down judgment on those who go against him? Yeah, that's part of it. But at the same time, what else would you expect? Kids follow the role models of their parents. And if their parents are devoting themselves to a particular thing, then they're going to grow up and do the same thing. If we as parents are devoting all of our time, energy, and focus to something other than God, then our kids are probably going to do the same. And it will be generations before that ever is escaped. And so what we see here from, from, this, from these first two commands of God and the way that it, it pertains to the sacrifice of time is that God calls us point blank to choose him alone, to worship him alone, to follow him alone. And he warns us that if we don't, there's a reckoning that's coming. And it's a reckoning that because we're choosing to worship and follow something else, we're bringing it on ourselves as well. You know, part of it is God's wrath pouring out, but the other part of it is that we're starting down a path that if we don't stop, our kids are going to just follow suit naturally. So before we really dig into what it means to sacrifice our time, which we're about to talk about here 
right now, we first have to understand that God calls us to choose him and warns us what will happen if we don't. And this brings us to the book of Romans. Before we jump into kind of the, the main passage in Romans 12.1, I want to read this passage from the beginning of, of the book of Romans. I, I like to think of Romans as the fifth gospel. Romans, Paul takes the, the message, the, the story of Jesus, and he synthesizes it into a theological discourse. And he explains why Jesus had to come and what he did when he did come. He doesn't go through the life of Jesus like the gospel accounts does, but he explains why Jesus had to come. How, why he came for Gentiles, why he came for Jews, why it was necessary. And at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, you, you come to this passage here in, in Romans 1, 21, where he's talking about Gentiles. So, so we all know that the Jewish people knew God because God gave the Jewish people the law. But he goes further and says, even the Gentile world knows God. He says in verse 21, for they knew God. They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And therefore God delivered them over to the desires of their heart, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So Paul is opening up his gospel here. He talks to the Jewish people and saying, listen, the law teaches you what righteousness is, but the law doesn't give you righteousness. So yes, you know God, and, and you are aware of God, and you are aware of the righteousness of God, but you yourselves aren't righteous without God. You need Jesus. And he speaks to the Gentiles and says, listen, you know God too. He's written on your hearts, the same as he's written himself on the hearts of everyone in humanity. The difference is you have given yourselves over to things that God created rather than he who created them. And because you did that, God said, okay, fine. I'll give them over to the things that they want. Now, this then ties into the bridge of Paul's letter. Romans 12, 1 and 2 are the two connecting pieces of, of, of Paul's letter to the Romans. The first 11 chapters is Paul breaking down why Jesus had to come, why he came for both Gentiles, why he came for Jews, and why it is necess necessary for us to believe in him if we want salvation. That there is no other path to God except through Jesus. And after saying all of that, now he's moving into the application side. Okay, so if we believe in Jesus, if we trust in him, and we believe that it's without him, we don't come to God. So then what do we do now that we live our lives as Christians? And that's what he's going to do for the rest of the book. But 12, verses 12, 1 through 2 is the bridge between the, the discussion on the theology of Jesus and the application of what we believe. Listen to these two verses. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, meaning in view of everything that we just talked about in the gospel, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Okay, so Paul's essentially taking rhetorical questions. Okay, Paul, if, if God died for us, if Jesus died for us so that we can be righteous through him and, and come to know God through him, well, then what, what do we do with our lives then? How do we live our lives here? You know, we don't have to earn righteousness then. We don't have to maintain a certain level of cleanliness if, if Jesus is the one that cleanses us. So what do we do here? Well, Paul says, you become a living sacrifice. You give your life to him. A living sacrifice, not a one hour a week sacrifice. Not a, fest, a, a festival sacrifice where we, you know, give ourselves to him on Easter and Christmas and, and maybe a, a mother day, Mother's Day here or there. No, a living sacrifice. Every single day. Holy and pleasing to God, if we want to worship him, this is true worship. And he throws in there, don't be conformed to this age. Because here's the thing, this is hard. How are we, think about how difficult it is, what Paul's calling Romans to do, to be a living sacrifice to God when everyone else in that world is doing the exact opposite. Now think about how hard it is for us to be a living sacrifice devoted to being holy, devoted to following him, devoted to worshiping him, when everyone else is telling us, you have an expiration date, so go eat, drink, and be merry, go, uh, mark off all of your bucket list, go fulfill all of your desires, go do all of these things that you want to do in this world because you only have a limited amount of time. That's why after Paul says, be a living sacrifice, he also says, don't conform to this age, but be transformed because what he is saying is hard. It's going to be hard to be a living sacrifice. It's going to be hard to devote the entirety of your life to worshiping him, to giving him, to committing to him when everyone else in the world is devoted to themselves, is devoted to making use of their time here to glorify and gratify themselves. Paul urges that the fullness of the gospel, that chapters 1 through 11, that it move us not just to say, I'll come every Sunday morning, not just to say, I'll come and take communion and leave, not just to say, I'll come on Christmas and Easter, but that we offer fully our lives to him. Paul urges that the fullness of the gospel move us to fully offer our lives to God. And this is tough. This is incredibly, incredibly difficult because it's every single day. And, and I say it's tough. Over time, the more you devote yourself, the more you become a living sacrifice, or you be, you're filled by it and you don't want to do anything else. You don't want to worship yourself. You don't want to give your time to anyone else because you're so fulfilled by it. You know, the reason that we, we devote all of our time to doing other things in this world is because we think those things will bring us joy. 
eventually this hole in our heart will be filled because we're committing ourselves to finding what will fill that hole. But the truth is, nothing will except for becoming a living sacrifice filled by God. But it is difficult. But that doesn't mean we don't have an application, we don't have an example of what this looks like. I want to just close here in a second with giving an example of what it means to be a living sacrifice. And this example comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel. If you know anything about Daniel, the most common story in the book of Daniel is Daniel and the lion's den. And in, in this story, Daniel is, is a, he's an advisor to the king, to the king of, of Persia, to King Darius. And there's lots of other advisors from all, all over the world. You know, the Babylonian Empire, they would go and they would conquer other kingdoms and then they would bring the smart, wise men of those other kingdoms into the courts of the king to be advisors to the king. And when Babylon was conquered by the Medes and Persians, they just kind of kept suit a lot of those advisors and then had a lot more of Persian advisors. But the thing is, Daniel had the wisdom of God and every king that Daniel served really admired Daniel's wisdom. And, and listen to Daniel. And so even though Daniel was this Hebrew, this podunk guy from the middle of nowhere, the king was listening to Daniel more than he was listening to his own Persian advisors. And they were starting to get frustrated with him. So, the, so they told Darius, hey, why don't you make an edict where no one worships anything but you? This is a great way, Darius, to make sure that everyone's submitting to the government of Persia, to, the govern, to, to your reign. No, it's just 30 days, just one month. No one worships anyone but you. No one gives anyone authority but you. It's, it's nonsensical. Let's just do it, Darius. Oh, okay, we'll do it. And so they put that edict into place. So no one was allowed to worship. No one was allowed to pray. No one was allowed to, to give any adoration to any god except for Darius. What did Daniel do? Daniel 6, verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house and the windows in the upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks to God just as he had done before. I, just, I, I, I picture someone going up to Daniel and saying, hey, hey, man, did you hear about that new decree that Darius just signed? You, you can't worship anyone else but him now. You, you just, just take a step back, you know? You know just, just 30 days, it'll be okay. You don't, just 30 days, God will understand if you're just taking 30 days off from devoting your life to him. He'll understand. What's Daniel do? He walks upstairs, throws the windows open, and says, I don't care. I'm worshiping God. I'm a living sacrifice. They can do whatever they want to me here. I'll sacrifice all of the accolades. I'll sacrifice all of the fame. I'll sacrifice all of the renown. I'll sacrifice all of the adoration that all these different kings are giving me because I want to worship my king instead. He knew what the punishment was. He knew he was going to be thrown into the lion's den. He was the advisor to the king. He knew all of the requirements. This isn't like he did this without knowing what would happen to him. But he did it because he chose to be a living sacrifice rather than serve himself. 
He knew what he was giving up. But he wanted to commit to God. And that commitment of Daniel exemplifies what Paul is talking about in Romans 12. To be a living sacrifice. Being a living sacrifice means we have this acute awareness that we are giving aspects of this world up. It means we might miss out on some of the sporting events we want to do. It means we might miss out on making a little bit of extra money. It means we might miss out on on going on, on some trips. It means we might miss out on some things that we really want to do with our time here because instead we're going to pursue the God who pursued us. It means that we are so acutely aware that the God of the universe loves and adores and came down to us We don't care about acquiring anything else here with our time that we have. We just want to be a living sacrifice in worshiping him. And like I said at the start, time is our most valuable commodity. It's something that everyone has, that no one knows the extent of, and we each get to personally choose what we do with. But so often we use it to gratify and glorify ourselves. We use our time for selfish purposes. And in modern Christianity, so much of our worship is done in this vacuum of a Sunday morning service. It's it's a checklist off of our to-do list. Okay, I started my week. I gathered in worship. Now I can go do whatever else I want. But that's not what Paul says the gospel should move us to. Paul doesn't say, because of the mercies of God, I urge you to go to church once a week. Because of the mercies of God, I urge you to make sure you have communion at least one time a week. No, he says, because of the mercies of God, I urge you to be a living sacrifice. We're willing to give that hour to each week as long as the rest of of our time is ours. Being a living sacrifice means so much more means we're giving up a lot because he gave up everything for us. I don't know if any of you have heard the name Kyle Eidelman before. He's a preacher at a church in Louisville, a big church called Southeast Christian Church. He wrote this book called Not a Fan, and he wrote it back when I was in high school. It, it was one of the books that kind of transformed my faith. And he writes in this book, I want to read straight from the book because I want you to know that this is straight from him. He writes of the story that happened to him as a preacher at Southeast Christian. It says, at the church where I'm a pastor, someone sent an email asking to be removed from the church membership and stated for leaving as, I don't like Kyle's sermons. So, you know, there's someone stepping on your ego a little bit. He said, that said, it begs for some kind of question, so I decided to call the person I checked the name of the person and got the phone number. I wanted to confirm it wasn't my wife. That would have been awkward. And so he calls the guy and he says, Hey, this is Kyle Item, and I understand you're leaving the church because you don't like my sermons. And there was a brief silence. I caught him off guard just as I had planned. It was awkward for a moment. And then he started talking, rambling really, trying to express what he meant. And somewhere in the middle of his lengthy explanation, he said something. And what he said was not meant to be encouraging, but his words caused me to breathe such a sigh of relief that tears came to my eyes. I pulled over to the side of the road, grabbed a pen, and wrote down what he said. Well, 
Whenever I listen to one of the messages, I feel like you're trying to interfere with my life. And Kyle writes, well, um, that's kind of my job description. But do you hear what he's saying? And this is what I want us to take to heart. He's saying, I believe in Jesus. I'm a big fan, but don't ask me to follow. I don't mind coming to church on the weekends. I'll pray before meals. I'll even slap a Jesus fish on my bumper, but I don't want Jesus to interfere with my life. Now, I don't know how many of you would be willing to write on a membership card. I'm leaving because I don't like Garrett's sermons. How many of us have that attitude? I'll, I'll, I'll be a fan. I'll sit back and I'll watch Jesus work. I'll come here and sit in the pews once a, once a week. You know, I'll even pray before a meal. I'll slap a Jesus sticker on my bumper, even if it means you know, people might, I might get pulled over a little bit more or something. I don't know. But I'll be a fan. But you want me to give up my time on this earth? My limited time, my most valuable commodity to, to follow? To get into the game? Well, I think Paul would argue that unless that's the commitment we're making, we're not truly committing ourselves to the mercies of God. So I want to conclude this passage with a couple of applications. What are some things that we can do to ensure that we are sacrificing our time for him? Firstly, we commit to a daily scripture reading plan. A daily scripture reading plan. You know, where, where we're sitting down every morning or every night or every time at lunch, every single day, we're finding time to be in God's word. Secondly, I, I think we should, should commit to a prayer clock. I think Daniel's example is great. Three times a day he prayed. This is a way of saying that he had certain periods throughout the day where he made sure no matter what he was doing, he dropped it and he prayed. Set an alarm on your phone. Set an alarm on your watch. We, we have smart watches now. Do something to remind you, right now, I need to get down and pray. Maybe it's just time to say, hey, God, I just want to sit in your presence for a little bit. I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to sit here and listen. That's fine. Commit to doing it throughout the entire day. And commit to daily worship moments where maybe you're just singing a psalm in your head. Maybe you're just listening to, to worship music and, and letting it resonate in your soul. But commit to doing that every single day. And commit to living an unashamed lifestyle. Paul says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That means we're committing to living out what Christ says. We're sacrificing our time to worship, but we're also sacrificing our lives in following. And commit to the church. Because the church is the people of God. And the truth is, it is very, very difficult, if not altogether impossible, to be a believer without a church. Because the church is God's people. It would be like saying... I'm an, I'm an American that lives on Mars. You might have an American citizenship, but are you really an American if you're living on Mars? A follower of Christ commits to the church. And lastly, and I think most importantly, I've talked over and over again about the importance of Judges 2.10 
about making sure we don't have another generation that rises up that doesn't know the ways of God, commit to teaching these things to your children. And not just saying, hey, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, because when you say, hey, you need to go clean up your room, what's the one thing the kid doesn't want to do? They don't want to go clean their room. But if you show them by example what it means to have a diligent prayer life, if you show them by example what it means to commit to praying all every, or to commit to reading God's word every day, if you show them what it means to commit to living a, a lifestyle like Christ amidst a world that doesn't, that's what it means to raise up another generation that follows and knows the ways of God. The truth is, sacrificing our time when time is the most valuable commodity we have is hard. And that's the aspect of committing to Christ that I think we'll all struggle with the most. Because we're not all the rich young ruler that has the world at his fingertips of wealth. But we're all the person that has time in our grasp. So what are we doing with it? Are we using it to gratify ourselves or are we using it to be a living sacrifice for him? For the one who sacrificed himself for us. And if you aren't a believer, if you haven't given your life to him, then, you know, what I'm telling you, it might not resonate with you that much. But let me tell you something. He gave everything for you so that you can be with him for eternity. And there's no reason why you should think that this life, this limited experience here is anywhere close to the value of eternity. And I urge you to give your life to him and experience eternity. And when you do, church, we need to be a living sacrifice. Committed to him in every facet of our lives. So this morning, as we close together, I, I'm, we're going to, to stand up as an entire church and we're going to sing this hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I hope that that's something we all do. That we make him the source of our life, the sole focus of our lives. And if you haven't given your life to him, if you haven't turned your eyes to him, I pray that you come forward and do that. Let me close this in a word of prayer and then we'll stand and sing together. Father, thank you for giving your life for us. Give us strength to give you our time, our focus, to commit to you to be a living sacrifice in all that we do, to follow the example of Daniel and to show the next generation what it means to be your children. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.